Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 176, Lighting Their Way to Disaster. Last time, we saw just five German U-boats enjoy unexpected successes along the East Coast. As the Americans were still gearing up for a war, they were catapulted into by Pearl Harbor and their as-yet policy of adopting the convoy system. Further, many young Americans, like Levi Mack, were learning that the war was already happening full force just off the North Carolina coast, and sadly, they were also learning what humans were capable of, and the lessons would not stop anytime soon. As January 1942 came to a close, U-boats 123 and 66, along with three other subs from Operation Palkenschlag, began their journey back to France. And yes, they would tell each other of the amazing successes they had, as if the other crewmen had not been there, but the downside was it would be a three-week trip of eating all the food they had avoided thus far. Not exactly going out in style. But that would change when they got back to the French coast, for Admiral Donitz would lavish them with fine food, alcohol, and, of course, medals. The good news for the German subcrews was that their nights were enlivened by picking up American jazz from the AM stations in North Carolina. This was possible because of the skywave effect, where the ionosphere reflects short or mid-wave AM radio signals back to Earth. However, not wanting to wait for the five U-boats to finish their return trip, Admiral Donitz wasted no time in bragging to Hitler, who, like MacArthur, did not think much of any Navy, of the operations surpassing his expectations. Hitler passed this on to the Japanese ambassador, saying, I myself have been surprised at the successes we met along the American coast lately. The U.S. kept up the tall talk and left their coast unguarded. But this was not technically true. The forces that shielded the American East Coast had a long way to go before being able to chase off any enemy subs before damage was done which was unfortunate as Donitz had already ordered other subs into the area, given the Americans' inability to safeguard their waters. Which did not stop the U.S. Navy from issuing statements that made it sound like the Germans had paid a hell of a price for their sinking of 25 Allied ships in January alone. This was a lie from any angle, But again, the Navy would not confirm kills as it would abet the Axis. Not that there had been any kills. As for the Allied or neutral shipping that went past the North Carolina coast, the government's statements did not alter the fact that these crews had to sail through oil slicks, bodies, and wreckage, and their thoughts turned to the fact that this was probably their future. But not because the Germans were incredible submariners, but because of all the lights on land that silhouetted the ships traveling from south to north. But it wasn't just the merchant marine who were complaining. The American destroyers on sub-duty quickly figured out that they too were being lit up by an American public that did not have a sense of urgency or emergency. 
Suffice it to say, a fair amount of curse words were hurled at the civilians along the coast. Indeed, the various crews would constantly ask each other, why in the hell did the government not order a blackout? The answers to this were varied and not satisfying, certainly at a time of crisis. For one, the Army and the Navy were going at each other, a normal state of affairs, but this time the question was, who was in overall command here? That would be determined by where the greatest threat was coming from, the sky or the seas. And as the answer could not be agreed upon, both branches refused to listen to or take advice from the other. And then there is the less glamorous answer that no politician wanted to be the one to annoy the public by calling for a blackout. Life, they would find, would grind to a halt after dark, and local economies would suffer. Again, no politician had the gumption to state the obvious. As the saying goes, a leader without followers is just a person taking a walk. Yet the biggest surprise of incompetence came from the U.S. Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier commander, Admiral Adolphus Andrews, who did not believe, or would not believe, that German subs would operate in waters under 60 feet deep. So the lights were not endangering anyone, as the Germans would not come that close to shore, but as we have seen, U-Boat 123 had temporarily operated in 30 feet of water. But at the end of the day, as there was a war on, it was the responsibility of the government and the military to tell the American people the truth, unpalatable as it may have been, and ask them to join in on the discomfort, at least for a while. But this did not happen during the opening months of 1942. Thus, more ships, crews, and goods would be lost just off the American East Coast. And it was the eventual loss of some 2,000 merchant mariners that helped the American brass see the light so to speak. Since 1945, there has been another conflict, this one between historians, as to whether restaurant owners and the like along the coast kept their lights on to attract customers and didn't care if it also attracted German subs. Others say that they did not know of the harm they were doing. The truth is probably, as it is in most times, somewhere in the middle. But surely most Americans, if not all, knew about the blackouts of Britain, Europe in general, and of Japan. It did not take a rocket scientist to figure this out, but no official word was coming from Washington, as people were traveling or had money in their pockets due to a significant increase in military spending. Various businesses were doing what they could to go after those dollars, which is the way of things. But all that was about to change, with word of the events just off the North Carolina coast getting back to that state's governor, J. Melville Broughton, in the form of anecdotes he decided to go see for himself. Traveling up and down the coast, talking to Coast Guard personnel and merchant marines, Governor Broughton was floored by what he saw and heard. First, the state's military defense plans against enemy subs was laughable, yet it wasn't funny as men were dying. Further, the civilians incorporated into the defense plan wasn't sure what they were allowed to do on their own, 
versus asking the military for permission, which stymied response times. Next, there simply wasn't enough men or ships to cover the area. And finally, the age-old tension, and therefore non-cooperation, that existed between the Army, Navy, Army Air Force, and Coast Guard. All this information was put into a message from the governor and sent to the Secretary of the U.S. Navy, Frank Knox. Included in his message, ironically, matching today's headlines, was that the coastal area hospitals were full to overloaded. But not being a seaman himself, the governor missed what should have been obvious, but no one had the heart or stomach to tell him. The hospitals might have been full, but they only held a small percentage of those attacked by the German subs. The majority of those crews, like the Empire Gem, were dead, lost at sea. His telegram to the Navy Secretary ended with, There should be a meeting of the region's military commanders between Norfolk, Virginia, and Charleston, South Carolina, if there was to be any improvement. But even this suggestion showed that Broughton was out of his depth, though his heart was in the right place. As for beefing up the numbers of ships and men in the area, not to mention the equally important blackout or dim-out orders, these measures could only be approved by the Navy's commander-in-chief, Admiral Ernest J. King, and he was not included in the loop. Still, not giving up and not waiting for someone on the federal level to get their act together, Broughton asked the North Carolinians living along the state's 375-mile coastline to help with the illumination problem. Of course, the locals along the Outer Banks were already doing their part as they tried to protect their own, but the mainland behind them was still brightly lit at night, so the peninsula's efforts were mostly in vain. And it would be here that one would hope to read that this concern was shared far and wide, that any and all immediately understood the seriousness or reasonableness of this request along the entire East Coast and complied. But that is not how human nature, nor the federal government, works. The dust-up that Broden kicked off set off a chain of inquiries, reports, tests, further reports, and as weeks went by and more ships were sunk, the obvious conclusion was slowly reached. In March, local steps were taken along the New Jersey coast, and in April, similar moves were made by locals in Florida and along the Outer Banks. What followed was a further strengthening of the various dim-out laws. On April 18, 1942, the U.S. Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier put out a dim-out rule along the Atlantic coast, and on April 25th, the Office of Civil Defense got involved. And finally, on May 16th, the Eastern Defense Command of the U.S. Army joined in. On the West Coast, these same dim-out regulations would go into effect, but only in August. And that was after a few Japanese sub-commanders, in an independent frame of mind, shelled various parts of the American West Coast. Incredibly, the Pacific Coast dim-out ran 150 miles inland. 
For comparison, the East Coast dim-out extended only 16 miles inland. And yet, even by June, the lights emanating from New York were only slightly dimmer. But every bit helps, and it would get better in time. Meanwhile, shifting gears, so to speak, for the locals of the Outer Banks and those along the coast of North Carolina's mainland, statewide laws ordered that traffic lights were to be put out for the duration and that cars would only use their parking lights. It will come as no surprise that the number of vehicle accidents rose alarmingly. In time, as the War Department improved the perimeter defense of the country, the punishment for it disobeying the dim-out laws had enough teeth to ensure compliance. Lawbreakers were put before a federal court, bypassing any state statutes, as those found guilty there could spend a year in jail and pay a fine of $5,000. As for those that lived along the Outer Banks, their knowledge of the dangers of illumination and their connection to the Coast Guard motivated them to do more than just simply comply. At the very least, any windows or doors that faced east were covered up. But then magazines like House and Garden got involved, offering decorating tips within the new guidelines, while also making it more socially acceptable. Soon, everyone was on board. Not that this helped the SS Byron D. Benson, a 465-foot-long, 8,000-ton oil tanker, that just happened to be sailing by the Outer Banks on the night of April 4, 1942. The story goes that just below Nags Head sat the Jockey's Ridge Casino, the major entertainment center of the whole peninsula. And on that night, though most of the young men were already gone, either haven't been drafted or volunteered, the place was packed with at least 1,000 people inside, gambling, dancing, or chasing the local girls, a typical night out for men in uniform who made up the majority of the crowd. Now, the casino's owner, George T. Raz Westcott Jr., followed all the rules as the two-story building's windows were covered and the lights all faced away from the sea. But that was not the problem. On either side of the casino were two open spaces of sand for parking lots, and they were full to bursting, with cars coming and going, all with their lights on. Or, of course, they might have driven into the sea. Either way, if it was the lights coming from the casino's parking lot or not, at 10.40 p.m., April 4th, the Byron was in the area, having come from Port Arthur, Texas, on its way to Bayonne, New Jersey, with 100,000 barrels of oil. But at that moment, a torpedo hit the tankard on its starboard side. The correct side to be struck, if a German sub was waiting in such a position to have the ship sail past it with the shoreline lights behind the victim. Right away, tons of oil started pouring out of the perforated ship, and what caused the damage, besides the torpedo, was a massive explosion that erupted upon contact. It may have taken two and a half minutes for the shockwave from the explosion to reach shore, but soon the people at the casino felt, or at least heard, the blast. 
Right away, everyone started shouting to put out all the lights. Not that it would make a difference now, if it was the building's lights that gave away the Byron. For whatever reason, Captain Eric Topp of U-Boat 552 that had let loose the torpedo then surfaced and put ten shells into the tanker, as if the explosion wasn't enough. Besides which, the submarine would have been better served if it had instead tried to avoid the naval escorts in the area, who were now firing star shells into the sky in hopes of spotting the aggressor. All this combined to make a freak show of flame, smoke, shooting light, and death, all for the viewing pleasure of the sub-captain and those at the casino. With some of the light boats wrecked, 25 crewmen climbed aboard number four and pushed away from the tanker. One lone sailor, unable to get to a lifeboat in time, grabbed a raft and managed his own escape. This left one man on board, an oiler who worked for the Texas company. Looking around, he saw the tightly packed lifeboat number four, but also lifeboat number two, which had departed a few minutes earlier. This oiler would survive, but only by diving into the sea and swimming under the flame-covered waves. Yet, there was a price to be paid first. Before he jumped overboard, he was watching lifeboat number two that held Captain John G. McMillan, who hailed from Staten Island, and nine others from the crew. This lifeboat had managed to get out in front of the tanker. The problem was... The tanker was still moving. As it was discovered later during a naval inquiry, the entire engine room staff had abandoned ship without shutting anything down. As the oilman watched, lifeboat number two was stalked by the tanker, still spewing oil and flame. A minute later, the tanker won the race. The lifeboat disappeared into the flames, and the captain and those on board were never seen again. This scene would play out in the oil man's nightmares for years. So, the question remains, did the lights from the casino give the tanker away to the German sub? Reverend Frank B. Dinwiddie believed that was the case. Dinwiddie was an amateur weather observer who would later publish thorough reports of tornado and funnel cloud activity associated with tropical storms and hurricanes. Between this hobby that he studied intently and being a man of the cloth, he was believed by the governor when he reported seeing this entire episode and put the blame on the casino. Still, this was only his educated opinion. But the point is, whether it was the casino or not, there were other lights coming from the mainland behind the peninsula, as America had a long way to go in taking this threat to ships seriously. And the naval investigations would continue as ships continued to be sunk off the East Coast with pitiful regularity. And what was found, though political spin cannot be ignored, was that, one, most ships had their own lights on at night, without covering hatches or windows. Were they giving themselves away? The Navy said so, 
But the merchant captains shot back with, Well, what does it matter what we do, as long as the East Coast is lit up like Christmas? Then, too, there's the Navy's accusation, which was correct on the surface, that merchant ships, until convoys took over, did not zigzag and simply sailed in a straight line from one buoy to another buoy, again increasing their chances of being detective. Which was all true enough, but the merchants would fire back with, well, no guidance or set of instructions were given to them by the military authorities, and they were in overall command during this crisis. Again, it was to be learning on the job. It's just that until everyone got their act together and were on the same page, ships would go down. Seamen and civilians would continue to die. Coast Guard staff would continue to risk their lives. And vital supplies were not reaching Allied partners. <laughs> 